You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning to you. Uh, if we have not met before, uh, my name is Matt Lulloyan, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Liberty, and um, good to be with you this morning. We're going to continue our series in Philippians today, and we're going to pick things up in chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, so if you have a Bible, you can make your way there. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles under the seat, Steve mentioned, or Bob mentioned, uh, page 980 is where you can find uh, the start of that text. Uh, but as you're turning there, I just want you to invite you to think for a moment about this book that we are opening, and that we open each time we, we gather together. What is this book? Some people think uh, that this is just ancient literature, that people today and over the last number of centuries just take way too seriously. We should just kind of leave it as ancient literature and look at it that way. Some people view the Bible primarily as a book of rules, uh, long lists of, of do's and don'ts. I've heard the Bible described before as an owner's manual for life, some people view the Bible that way. The Bible is primarily, it's primarily the story of God and the story of, of God's work in the world. It's all about what he has done to create and to redeem the world, this earth. It's about what he is doing and done through his people, through the prophets and the priests and the kings, and then ultimately through Jesus to make all things new. And I don't, I don't know about you, that, that might be a brand new kind of revelation or idea for you, but that was a game-changing discovery for me in my life, to, to start to see that all of these stories that maybe seemed not connected were actually part of one bigger story. And I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones puts this in the introduction to the Jesus Storybook Bible, how really everything in Scripture whispers Jesus' name. Every story whispers his name, that's how she says it. As we embrace this, that, that the Bible is one big story about God and his work in the world, we can't forget that this book demands something of us. It also demands something of us. It commands us. And so it's not simply a story that we get to read and to kind of sit back passively and appreciate. It's a story that we respond to. It's a story that we have a place in. And what we find out really quickly is that our place in this story, our role involves a lot of obedience, a lot of obedience. Now, obedience is not a word that, that we hear a whole lot today, unless we're talking about young kids or animals. Those are maybe the two realms that we hear the word obedience. Like Dogs go to obedience school. Mine needed to. We never did that. But dogs go to obedience school, and young kids learn to obey their parents and teachers and other adults in, in appropriate ways. But we tend to think that obedience, then, is something we outgrow. So, something that we all had to learn at some point. We all were young once. We had to learn obedience when we were young. But something we get to then leave behind as we venture out into adulthood. The reality is, this is true for all people, but especially for Christians, we never outgrow obedience. We never outgrow it. And that's because Jesus is not just our Savior, but Jesus is our Lord. He doesn't only rescue us from sin and bring us into his story, although, thank God, he does do that. But as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords, we've been even singing about that together this morning, as the highly exalted one, 
like Paul wrote about earlier in Philippians 2. We saw it last week. As all of those things, Jesus has the right to tell us how to live. And in fact, we believe that he has the best way to live, that, that his way of living and the way he calls us to live is the only way that actually meets our deepest needs and desires. And so Paul, the Apostle Paul, follows up the hymn of Christ, verses 6 through 11 that we looked at last week, by calling the Philippians to press on in obedience. Press on in obedience. He, he just has finished pointing to Jesus as the ultimate example of humility. But if you remember from last week, part of Jesus' humility, central to his humility, in verse 8, was Jesus' obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so for us to follow Jesus as the ultimate example, to emulate Jesus, then means we too must obey. So let's continue on in Philippians chapter 2. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. I'm going to pick it up in verse 12 and then read through verse 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. I think some translations say disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord, we ask now, even in this moment, that you would teach us your ways and lead us on a level path. Teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit to follow your decrees that we might keep them to the end. Give us understanding that we might obey you with all of our hearts. And we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus, who is both our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the early planning for this sermon series some months back now, we initially had called this sermon, Press On as Laboring Lights. As you heard, Paul here writes about the Philippians' work, their labor. He also writes about them shining as lights. So we could have gone with that title. We're certainly going to talk about those things as we walk our way through today's text. But really, the central idea here in, this, in these verses is obedience. It's obedience. And so our titles are not, fallible, not infallible. You know, they, we can be wrong and often though. So we adjusted this week. We're calling it press on in obedience instead. And Paul here gives three reasons for the Philippians to press on in their obedience. First, obedience for our own salvation. Second, obedience for others. And third, obedience as an offering. So for our own salvation, for others, and as an offering. So first, let's talk about obedience for our own salvation. And here's a kind of a big question for you to consider this morning. What place does our obedience have in our salvation? What does our obedience have to do with our salvation? For Christians, verse 12 here in Philippians 2 is one of those verses that messes with our understanding. 
messes with our understanding. See, the Apostle Paul, through and through, teaches that salvation comes by grace through faith, that it comes from God as a gift, not by what we do, not by our works. Our salvation is accomplished by Jesus, not by us. In just one example, Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, same author of these words in Philippians, Paul, Paul writes that to the one who does not work, but who believes, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. That's how salvation happens. So what in the world does it mean when he writes here in verse 12 to work out your own salvation? Literally, the translation means bring about your own salvation. Is Paul kind of pivoting? Is he changing course? Is he, is he giving the Philippians a different message than he's taught before? You know how if you grew up with siblings, my sister's actually here today, so this is awesome. If you grew up with siblings, it always felt like your parents had one set of rules for you and then another set of rules for your siblings. And it can kind of go in two different directions. Like if you're the oldest and things kind of tend to go well, then maybe your parents were more strict with you and they loosen up with subsequent kids. Or it could go the other way. If it didn't go well with the first kid, then they like tighten the reins a little more on subsequent kids. You probably have some story that resembles that in some way or another if you have a sibling. Well, maybe that's what Paul's doing here. Grace through faith, that was fine for the Galatians. That was early in Paul's ministry. It was fine for the Ephesians and the Romans. But... Sorry, Philippians, we learned some stuff through their experience. For you, your salvation's on you. You got to work it out yourself. As you might have guessed, that's not what Paul is doing here. And we come to see in Scripture that the word salvation is a really packed word. It's a really packed word. There are many aspects to God's saving work. And we've used this illustration before, but I think it's a helpful one, so we'll, we'll keep going with it. Like different facets of a diamond we can look at salvation from a number of different vantage points and grow in our appreciation of it. And scripture itself even gives us so many different pictures and and metaphors and images of what salvation is. So one way to think about it is this. Is salvation an event or is salvation a process? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Viewed from one facet, one that we would call justification, Salvation is an event. It's a declaration made in a moment. Because of Jesus, thank God for this, your sins are not counted against you. And there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus, your sins are not counted against you. He took your sin upon himself. And his perfect record, when you believe in him, when you trust in his finished work, his record counts on your behalf. It's a done deal. In justification, You and I are completely passive. It's been said that the only thing we contribute to our salvation, and salvation in that sense means justification, the only thing we contribute to our justification is the sin that that required it. That's the only thing we we give to that, that deal. But from another facet of this diamond, one we would call sanctification, salvation is a process. And Paul has already been speaking about sanctification, this facet in chapter 1. He said there in chapter 1, Jesus will bring to completion, that's a process, bring to completion the good work he has begun. And so when Paul here says, work out your own salvation, he's referring to sanctification. And in our sanctification, unlike justification, in our sanctification, we're incredibly active, To the point, and this will make us uncomfortable maybe even a little bit, to the point where Paul can call the Philippians, who like you and me are flawed, sinful, broken men and women, 
to bring their own salvation about. That's what he's saying here. How? How? By continually obeying Jesus. See, as Paul writes here, the Philippians, ever since they have trusted in Jesus, they have lived lives of obedience. And not just when Paul was there with them in Philippi, but when and since Paul has been absent. And so Paul is saying, now press on in your obedience. Keep going. Don't don't trade on old obedience. Don't just hang your hat on the obedience you did yesterday. There's always more obedience to be done. Don't act as though you've actually already arrived at that completed state when you haven't. Keep obeying. Keep going. Paul, of course, did not come up with this idea on his own. Jesus, during his life and his ministry on the earth, called people to obey him. He called people to to actually do what he said, to listen and to put it into practice and follow his example. He tells his disciples in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. You will keep my commandments. Now, what commandments might we be, be talking about? There's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. But just to name a few, Jesus said that we should love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Jesus said that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. He said we should forgive people. And if we start reading places like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, I mean, rapid fire commands in the Sermon on the Mount. Get rid of things that cause you to sin. Love your enemies. Don't store up treasures on earth. Don't worry. And on and on we could go. That's how we participate in our sanctification, by actually listening to and obeying those commands from Jesus, by putting our sin to death and by replacing that, by replacing our sin with obeying him. See, see, sanctification, I mean, there's an incredible spiritual and even a mysterious aspect with how God is is in process with us and, and bringing his work to completion. But sanctification is actually a lot less mystical than we might think at times. Sanctification is work. It's labor. It's hard work. It's pressing on in obedience. That's how we work out our own salvation. But before we would start to divide this up and start to think, okay, well, justification, that's God's work. He has to do that. I'm passive. Sanctification is my work. And each, you know, God and I each do our separate parts. And if we start to think that way, before we can get very far down that road, Paul immediately writes the next words. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, we, we work because God works. The only reason The only reason we can work, the only reason that we're even able to be active in this aspect of our salvation is because God is present tense and continually working in us. God is doing this deep inward work with our will, our desires. He's changing our desires and actually making us want to follow him and want to obey Jesus. But he's not just changing our desires in the internal. He's actually making it possible for us to follow through on that. It's to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what we have here in in these two verses, 12 and 13, is a glimpse of one of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith. One of the great paradoxes. That God is completely in control and we can do nothing apart from him. And at the very same time, that as human beings, we are completely responsible for our own actions. We see that really succinctly put by Paul right here. We are responsible to obey 
And we can only obey because God is working in us. You can talk about this for a long time in a lot of different ways, and I'm sure in some of your Bible study groups this week you'll get a chance to to do that a little bit. But here's what I would call you to as your pastor this morning. Don't resolve this tension. Don't resolve it. Hold the paradox today. Hold the paradox for the rest of your life. If you only talk about, if you only emphasize human responsibility, you will be crushed by the weight of talking about obedience. Because all of your failures, all the times that you and I disobey, they will lead you to this place of utter despair. And what you need to see in Philippians chapter 2 this morning, friends, is that God is on the side of his people. He's on the side of his people. He is working in you to do this. He does not set an impossibly high standard for you and then stand off in the distance and wait for you to fail. You can think of it this way. He is not Jonah. He is Jesus. You know how Jonah in his story, when he finally does go to Nineveh, he's telling them about all the things they're doing wrong and how they need to repent. And after he does that, he leaves the city, he goes up to a high place where he can see the city and just waits. He's like, here we go. Here's here's where God brings the hammer of judgment down upon this people. And it doesn't happen. Well, sometimes we can start to take that perspective of God into our own into our perception, where we start to think that's how God operates, that he says, here's all the things you got to do. Here's all the things you're doing wrong. You got to repent. And then God stands off at a distance waiting for us to fail. That's not Jesus. That's not God. He is with you. He is working in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So we can't just emphasize the human responsibility part or we'll, we'll be crushed by it. But if we only emphasize, if we only talk about the sovereignty of God, his complete control, will become really passive. We won't actually step into this active role that God has given you to play in something as significant as your own salvation. God actually said through the Apostle Paul, the Spirit said through Paul, bring about your own salvation. You'll miss the incredible gift of seeing God show up in your life with all of his grace and power and enabling you to actually obey If you think that obedience is just something that the super Christians do, the saints and the the disciples and the apostles and maybe a few select Christians in any given era, no, actually, that's you and me. And by his grace and power, God will show up in your life and actually make it possible for you to follow the things that Jesus told us to do. All of which to say, work hard. Work hard. Put all of your energy into obeying Jesus. But know deeply, put this gospel reflex into your soul. And the gospel reflex is this. When you succeed in obeying Jesus, rejoice that God is at work in you. When you fail in obeying Jesus, rejoice that your salvation does not hang upon your obedience, but is always hung upon the obedience of Jesus himself. That's the reflex. You can rejoice when you succeed. God is at work in you. You can rejoice as you repent, when you fail, because it's Jesus' obedience and not yours. So we obey, for one, for the sake of our own salvation. But, as Paul continues here, not just for our sake. Not just for our sake. Second, let's talk about obedience for others. A couple weeks ago, I was in the, the mountains of North Carolina and after the sun had gone down one evening, we had a, a great place that we were staying there for these couple days. Way off in the distance, you could see someone having what I think was a, a backyard fire. And being uh, far away from, from a city, being far away from all the light pollution that you get when you're near a city, 
made the difference really striking. Miles and miles of darkness, shadowy mountain ranges kind of silhouetted in the evening sky. And then this this one solitary bright shining fire. Here in verse 15, Paul writes that our obedience, our lives, are meant to shine as lights in the world. They're lights that are meant to shine. Their impact, their effect is meant to reach and to be seen far beyond our own life. And this is not the first time that we encounter this imagery in the Bible. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, there's these famous I am sayings through the gospel of John. And in John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John, of course, is also the writer at the beginning of his gospel called Jesus the true light. He said, the light has come into the world and the darkness has not overcome it. Even more remarkable though, Jesus then tells his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. So not only, Jesus says, am I the light of the world, but you are the light of the world. And he says there, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That was, in the Sermon on the Mount, that was Jesus' command to people who were already his followers. He was there teaching his disciples, and he's saying to them, you already are the light of the world. That's already your identity. So let that light shine. Act in light of who you are. Be, Be who you are. That's really then what Paul is saying here to the Philippians. He's saying, you already are children of God, as he writes. You shine as lights in this world. Keep shining. Keep shining. Now, what does it mean to shine? What does it mean to shine? In pop music over the past number of decades, I think this goes back actually a ways, shine has become kind of this vague, ambiguous word of affirmation. Kind of means to show off, uh, to stand out, to unapologetically be, be you, be the best version of yourself, shine. It's not completely unrelated. It's not completely unrelated to what Paul is writing here. But according to Paul, shining is all about a specific kind of life, a blameless and innocent life, as he writes. Shining ha- has everything to do with the moral quality and conduct of our lives, which means that shining actually has everything to do with obedience. To to really get what Paul is saying here, we have to understand the the reference that he is making in these verses. He's alluding to something very specific in the history of God's people. After the Israelites had been set free from their 400 years of slavery in Egypt, they were were out, they they were miraculously led to, to cross through the Red Sea. They were all set to enter into the promised land relatively quickly. But did they? Did they enter into the promised land quickly? No. Why not? Well, because instead of trusting God and entering in, they disobeyed. They they planted their feet. They entrenched themselves and said, no, we won't go in. And instead of following God's appointed leader, Moses, they kept grumbling and disputing, grumbling and complaining. So when Paul says here in verse 14, do all things without grumbling and disputing, That's a direct reference to the way the Israelites conducted themselves in the wilderness, as is his reference there to a crooked and twisted generation. That's a loaded term that Paul is borrowing from Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. It's how Moses referred to that generation of Israelites who grumbled and complained. A pop song version of shining 
might actually affirm the Israelites in that. You know, that's right, Israelites. Don't let Moses tell you what to do. Don't listen to God. You do you. You be you. Keep shining. Shine bright like a diamond. Or whatever lyric you'd want to put in there from whatever song you listen to that has the word shine in it. Collective soul, that's the one. Okay, never mind. I'm getting down a... That's, that's my... That's the, that song I think of. Well, it's that kind of shining. It's that kind of shining that kept them from entering the promised land. It's that kind of shining that, that as a consequence, God said, you're going to wander around the wilderness for 40 years until your whole generation dies off and only your kids are going to enter in. When the light in you is darkness, how great the darkness. Paul is saying here to the Philippians, don't make the same mistake that that generation did. He's saying, you actually have a better leader than Moses. Jesus is the greater Moses, and he's actually leading a greater exodus. Not just out of slavery to Egypt, but out of slavery to sin. And unlike the generation of, Israel, of those Israelites, Paul is saying, I want you, Philippians, to make it. I want you to make it. But not only you, I want you to point the way for others. I want you, you and your life to stand as a stark contrast to the darkness that exists in the world. And the way to do that is to obey Jesus. It's to, it's to be holy as he is holy. It's to live blameless and unblemished. You see, all of that assumes that there's an actual standard, an objective standard to blamelessness, that we don't get to make it up. We don't get to just say, it's what I want it to be. This kind of shining is far more objective than subjective. It has everything to do with obedience. Now, here's the remarkable thing. Here's the remarkable thing. Of all the potential things Paul could say about what a blameless life entails, what obedience entails, what he highlights here is not about our eating and drinking habits. He could have talked about that. It's not about our sexual expression or our sexual restraint. could have talked about that. It isn't murder or hatred or theft or even, even worshiping false gods. What is it? Grumbling and disputing. Grumbling and complaining. If you want to shine as a light in the world, that means you're not entitled to a little grouchiness. And even if you're complaining about things that might actually line up with the, the design of God, the good design of God, complaining is not a spiritual gift. I think, I think this is kind of funny, and I think it's absolutely brilliant. Why? Because often the people who most are most prone to point out how dark the world is are also those who tend to complain the most and grumble the most and dispute the most. If you actually care to be part of the solution, Paul is saying here, if you actually want to shine as a light in the darkness, you have to stop grumbling. Your, your grumbling is preventing that. It's hindering you from being blameless and blemishness. Blemishless blemishless. You're, you're pointing out all the ways that the world is dark, that the crooked and twisted generation has gone astray from the design of God, but you're just blending into the darkness. You're just blending in when you complain and dispute. The reality is, because we're in process, we will never perfectly be blameless or blemishless in this life. But this is why Paul writes this after what he's written there in verses 12 and 13. It's part of his same call to obedience. And he's saying, in essence, because God is working in you, work this out in your life. You actually can stop grumbling and disputing. You actually can shine as a light that actually stands out from the darkness of this world because God is working in you because Jesus didn't just say, I am the light of the world. He said, you 
are the light of the world. You can actually do this. And the stakes are so high, are so high. The darkness in which we live, the the crooked and twisted generation that we live among, and could be said of any generation that has gone before us, desperately needs the light of the world. The poet T.S. Eliot once wrote about how our world, and he wrote this about 60 or 70 years ago, how our world is attempting an experiment of living without regard for God, utter disregard for God. We're in an experiment of doing that. And it's an experiment that's bound to fail. It always does. When when you set yourself against the grain of God's design in the world, it always fails. But T.S. Eliot goes on to say the role of Christians in those moments when the world's trying this experiment that's bound to fail, the role of Christians is, quote, to save the world from suicide. Save the world from suicide. Your obedience can save the world from suicide. It's because it's your obedience that actually makes you shine as lights in the darkness. So obey not only for your sake, but obey to push back the darkness in this world, to let people see there actually is a better way and they don't have to go on living in the darkness. Love other people, love this world enough to save it from suicide. And you can do that through your obedience to Jesus. So we obey for our own salvation. We obey for others. Third and finally, obedience as an offering. As an offering. And Paul closes this part of his letter with another reference to Israel's history. Specifically, the sacrificial system. Under the old covenant, the people of God would offer sacrifices in their worship. Sacrifices of animals or grain, things like that, atone for their sin. If you've been following along with us in the the New Testament reading plan we're doing this year, we're in the book of Hebrews right now, and you're seeing there in Hebrews, Jesus fulfills that sacrificial system. He is the perfect sacrifice once for all. That does not mean, however, that you and I are done with sacrifices and with offerings. Paul himself writes in his letter to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we no longer present animals. We present ourselves. We present our our lives. We present our obedience. And this language here that we've already seen a little bit of being blameless, of being without blemish, that is the same language of the sacrificial system. You You weren't supposed to bring offerings that had blemishes in them. You're supposed to bring pure and holy offerings. And Paul is saying, we are living sacrifices who worship God through our obedience. What's more, what's more, Paul's saying here, we obey as a way to honor those who have led us to Jesus. That our obedience honors their obedience. And Paul here is picturing himself, his own life, as a drink offering. It's a drink offering. With some of the Old Testament sacrifices, a drink offering of wine was poured out on top of the sacrificed animal or on top of the grain as it was on the altar. And Paul is saying here, that's me. I'm the drink offering poured out upon you, Philippians, as the offering on the altar. I don't know if you've ever cooked with wine. I haven't because I'm not a good cook. I don't really cook much of anything in my house, but it smells amazing. It smells amazing, doesn't it? When you cook with wine, a drink offering 
was this complimentary thing you would pour wine on top of the sacrifice as it was on the altar, and the aroma, the aroma of meat cooking in wine or even grain with wine poured out on it would ascend to God as a pleasing sacrifice. It made the offering that much more incredible. It complimented it. And Paul is saying, let my obedience complement yours. Don't let any of my obedience become in vain. And what I would say to you this morning is any of you who are here this morning and are Christians, you are not a Christian because of you. That's, of course, first and foremost true because it's God who has done this incredible work in you. But even from a human standpoint, you're not a Christian because of you. Someone sacrificed. Someone gave their time and their energy. Someone obeyed in order that you might be taught and encouraged and equipped to follow Jesus. And the sincere ones, the ones who share Christ, not out of envy or selfish ambition, but out of love, they will do that for you and for other people gladly. Like Paul, they are willing to spend and to be spent for your souls. But we're meant to keep that going. We're meant to let their offering, their living sacrifice, become the complement to our own. When we offer up our lives in obedience, it honors the obedience of those who have gone before. Honors the obedience of those who have gone before. Which is why, after all of this talk about obedience, how does Paul close his letter? How would, how would you, maybe before this morning and talking about obedience, if I just said the word obedience, a little word association game, what would come to your mind? Obligation, responsibility, duty, maybe good, it's good to obey, it's worthwhile to obey. Probably not what Paul says. After all this talk of obedience, Paul closes this part of his letter saying what? Gladness and joy. Gladness and rejoicing. There's an old hymn written in the late 1800s called Trust and Obey. Some of you are familiar with this, this hymn? If you've been around the church for some years, you may have sung it different places over the course of your life. The chorus, very memorable, very catchy chorus, goes, Trust and obey, for there's no other way you guys know it? To be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. I'm going to be honest with you. I've never liked that song. I kind of set you up a little bit there, but never really liked that song. Why? Because it's always made me think of a, of a stoic, mechanical, surface level kind of Christian faith. Where the kind of faith where we might like plaster a happy smile on our face. You know, to be happy in Jesus. Don't ask questions. Don't wrestle with things deeply. Just do it. Trust and obey. Trust and obey, trust and obey. Now, maybe that is, maybe my perception is what the hymn writer had in mind when they wrote this hymn. I don't know. I think actually maybe that writer had some Philippians 2 going on deep in his soul. If some, Think about this. If someone told you there was a way to simultaneously participate in your own salvation and push back what remains dark in this world and honor the people whose obedience actually led you to faith in Christ yourself. Would that not put a smile on your face? Would that not lead you to a little bit of gladness and rejoicing? And Paul is saying here in Philippians 2, there is a way to do all of those things simultaneously. It's obedience. It's obedience. And there's nothing stoic or mechanical or surface level about it. The God of the universe is with you. He is working in you to bring this very thing about. The light of the world, Jesus Christ, has said, you are the light of the world. Go shine. Go shine. And it becomes one of the greatest honors you can pay 
a fellow Christian, that image is just unbelievable, is it not? The, the obedience of those who have gone before being poured out on top of your own obedience and the whole thing just rising up to God as a fragrant and beautiful aroma. I mean, it's just amazing that we get to compliment another person and honor another person at that kind of depth in our lives. It's the greatest, one of the greatest honors you can pay a fellow Christian. So may we know the happiness of obedience to Jesus, the real gladness and joy. I want to know it more than I do right now when I read Philippians 2. And I'll close with this. Liberty Church, you have been saved by the obedient service of Jesus Christ. So now become his obedient servants. For your salvation and for others and as an offering, may you know the joy of obeying the one who has obeyed for you. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, we ask even now in this moment that you would direct our lives in obedience to you. And we're about to come to this table. We're about to acknowledge that we do not obey you, that we disobey and we're prone to wander in our disobedience. And so we come this morning recognizing and seeing here in this tangible form the picture of your perfect obedience. Thank you that that our salvation hangs upon what you have done and not what we can do. Thank you that you are a God who works in us, that actually by your grace and power, we can follow you, Jesus. We can step into and keep the commandments that you've given us to keep. We ask for grace. We ask for power from your Holy Spirit, even in this moment as we come to this table, that you would help us to become the people you have made us to be, that you have called us to be. Thank you for obeying Jesus on our behalf. Help us to, be, to obey you from the heart and fully in every aspect of our lives. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.